Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, or not. Who knows? Anyway, hello, dear listener. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, playing the finest in indie pop and beyond, and sometimes going off-road, because this week's special guest is going to be fast Eddie Clark, one-time guitarist with Motorhead, and much, much more. So I've got that interview that I've uh, broken up into probably three easy-to-digest little segments alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. So to get the party rolling, I think I'm going to play your favourite and mine. This is Motorhead. And the crowd went wild. That is Motorhead with the track, obviously titled Motorhead. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. This week's special guest is Fast Eddie Clark, who I interviewed in 2017. 
Um, yes, yeah, so I've got that interview that I broke up into three easy-to-digest little segments for your delight, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But before we have any more music or chat, let's do some admin, because I love admin. You can contact me on uh, the show via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just go to at C86show. Also, all these uh, shows have been archived. I've been doing them for over three years. Each week has a special guest, and you can find them on Spotify, iTunes... Podbean or Mixcloud. Fill your boots. Anyway, let's play one more track and then the first part of that interview. This is going to be Bomber. Still sounding amazing. I know, that's an obvious thing to say. Anyway, that's Motorhead, that is Bomber. This is David Eastall, this is the C86 Show. This is the first part of my interview with Fast Eddie Clark. And this is the part which, um, yes, I was curious about his background and the early years. And I wanted to say, Eddie, tell us everything. Tell us now. Well, that's a long story. Maybe I should try and cut it short. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, well I, well, I started playing guitar when I was around, I think, about 13. And um, it was just something I happened to pick up of a, a friend of mine's brother, you know, an older brother. And uh, it was really the older brother's influence. Um, they were into the Yardbirds. Right. And um, 
I tagged along when I was about 14, 15 to, to see them at the Crawdaddy. And uh, and I never looked back really musically. I thought, oh, I'd like to do that, you know. Yes. And uh, was it was it the guitar, you know, particularly the guitarist that was the... the well, it was Eric Clapton, of course, in those days. Yes. And, um, well, I think there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of, um, you know, peer pressure, you know. I could hear them talking about how great Eric was and all that. So I think I kind of latched on to that. Right. Because uh, I, I was literally, I, was, I think I was 14 going on 15 when I sneaked in. Yes. So, you know, I've often thought about it, but, um, but you know, of course, once I got into it, I mean, Eric became sort of like my, my guiding light. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, so I followed him with the Yardbirds. Of course, then he left the Yardbirds, and then he went to um, the Blues Breakers with John Mayall. And that was just wonderful, the Beano album. Yeah. And, and that really was a, a landmark for me. I had a little band then um, called The Bitter End, and we used to do all the, the whole album, you know. Fantastic. And we used to play youth clubs. Yes. You know, local youth clubs. And um, so that was kind of the start, you know. And then, of course, things, you know, then you leave school. I left school at 15 and stuff. Well, I left school at 15. I just wanted to get out of school. It wasn't really my cup of tea. And um, I had this little amplifier that kept going wrong. And I really wanted to know how to fix it. So I went for this TV engineer job. And the guy said to me, he said, um, I said, well, why do you want this job? I said, well, I've got this amplifier and I really want to know how to fix it. <laughs> so they gave me the job. Excellent. So, so of course, but then once you're out of work, you know, things take over and you meet women and this, that and the other happens, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, so, so there was sort of a four, four, I mean, I was still sort of twiddling away, but not so much. And then I kind of relocated with it when I was, I stopped working. I started playing guitar again and then I stopped working and tried to go semi-professional. Uh, uh, I played with a band called Frankie Reed and the Casuals. We were doing, um, he was like an Elvis impersonator type. We were doing Elvis songs and Chuck Berry songs and all that and doing the local pubs, you know. Yeah. Uh, that went on for, I don't know, maybe six months. Uh, and then that petered out. But then, of course, I was in that sort of groove then. Yeah. I'm a guitar player, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I starved for a while and sort of, you know, kicked my heels and one thing or another, did odd jobs and learn how to paint and... And then, of course, because I could do electrics, you know, I, I I started to do electrician work and stuff like anything I could lay my hands on, really. Yeah, yeah. So then, of course, I spent a few years doing that, and then, of course, I joined Curtis Knight, which was a, a bit of a a bit of a coup, really, because once you're in a little band, you you learn so much, you know, from sure. from the old guys, you know. So we, we did a couple of sessions, one at Olympic and one at CBS, did an album. Uh, of course, I, I learned a lot from that. Yeah, yeah. But that petered out as well. Uh, then I did a sort of a solo thing I was trying to put together, and then that petered out. <laughs> and then, of course, I, I met Lemmy and Phil. And that was that was the beginning. Because what is interesting, because I know that um, one of my other heroes was um, David Bowie, and it was interesting because he was the same age as Lemmy, and whenever they were asked, you know, their musical influences, both of them said Little Richard as, as, the, right. as their sort of almost ground zero. And it was interesting because also, you know, Bowie was looking for his Jeff Beck, who was obviously in the Yardbirds at one stage, and found, uh, was it Mick Ronson? Mick Ronson, yeah, yes. fantastic. So... So both, because they were quite blues-based guitar players, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was all, you know, I mean, my my basic thing was blues anyway, So, but not, not the blues blues. It was the the English blues, yes. you know, the R&B from the early 60s, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas, as you say, I think that five, because they were five years older than me, those two. That's right. Um, that put them in that category, Little Richard. Yes, Little Richard was the man, wasn't he? He was the man, yeah. And I see, I see, I do, I see clips of him, and I saw some clips actually not long ago, and I thought I can see it, you know. Yes, the first time. I, it was also what John Peel said. Um, the first time you heard Elvis was that you know the, the world was never going to be the same again, really. Was, yes, I guess, yeah. You know, it was that moment actually, which sort of all came together. And obviously, when you sort of um, met Lemmy and Phil, you know, this this was kind of the mid. 70s wasn't it at that point it was it was uh, well i'd met phil i was i was actually doing a job on a houseboat i was i was foreman uh, and this was the money i was using to to fund my solo album and actually some uh, one of the guys brought phil along and said can you give him a job so i said yeah sure he seemed like a nice bloke i chatted to him and that and then i got to know him really well while we were working together and then he disappeared and then he called me up and said you know i'm in this band motorhead now 
would you come and play second guitar? And of course, and that's and so I said, yeah. Then of course I ran into Lemmy and we put a, an audition together, and the other guitarist wasn't too keen. Right. And so that left us as, as a three-piece. Uh, and so, and so that was kind of how, how Phil, that I met Phil and Lemmy, you know. That was quite interesting because, because kind of a couple of months ago, I did an interview with Dave, dear old Dave Brock from Hawkwind. Oh yeah, who was all part of that sort of free festival was, yeah. and squat period, which is obviously Lemmy was in as well. So during that mid seventies period, I mean, things were looking kind of grim in this country, wasn't it as well? It was grim, very grim. I mean, Lemmy was in a squat, Phil was in a squat. I was in a, I was in a shared flat. We were like, I'd, I'd met some people who had a, a mansion flat on cheap rent. Yeah. And I was just renting the room for a five or a week. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but back then it was quite a find, you know. Yeah, of course. So, um, but, um, yeah, it was very, very grim, but there was absolutely no money about. No. Uh, I remember scraping money together just to pay the five and, and having rehearsals. Scraping the money together was difficult. Uh, I mean, I remember one time with Motorhead, we were, when we were first starting, we were doing some gigs up north. And we couldn't get home because we didn't have any petrol money. So the tour manager had a brother who, who was a member of the AA. So he phoned his brother and got the AA number. And what we did was we, dis we, we let all the hydraulic fluid out, the brakes. And if you do that, the AA, when they come along and say, oh, no, it's the brakes, we can't do any roadside. <laughs> we have to put you on a trailer and take you back to London. Yes. So, so you know, so, I mean, that's how much how much money there wasn't about, you know what I mean? Well, it's interesting because I did an interview a few months ago with an indie band, and this was like, you sort of forgot about this. This was in the 80s where they'd gone up to sort of Glasgow for a gig and it had been cancelled. But obviously in the days where you had to go to phone boxes with lots of two people. Yeah, yeah. So they, they didn't have any money because that was going to be the gig money, was going to be the petrol money. So they found someone in Preston who said, oh, I'll put you up for a week. And they had to busk, get some money, get the petrol and come back home. And, oh, brilliant. And you think, Christ, of course, you know, you didn't just make a quick phone call or text somebody, you know. No, you, no, you, it was. You, you had the truck around going to phone boxes at eight o'clock in the evening. Oh, that's right. Well, we, <laughs> I remember we were going to a show. We were doing a show, and that, this was a year or two later. Um, the, the, van, the car had broken down, and then we took off again in another car, and that broke down, but it broke down on the Yorkshire Moors. <laughs> well, of course, you can't, as you say, you can't contact anybody. Yes, you're, you know, you're somebody stumped. has to thumb a lift and get you to the nearest place, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, people, yeah, people who never lived through that, of course, don't um, yes. can have no con concept of what it was like. Because the other thing was, you see a phone box, you think, oh, fantastic, <laughs> and of course, it doesn't work. <laughs> I know. Or you had to sort of leave the door open so it didn't sound like a phone box at someone because you pretended you, you, you told the person that was your office, and you thought, oh, uh, no, I never did that. <laughs> you didn't uh, no, that. I never did that because. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was a musician. I was supposed to be in a phone box. Oh, good. That's excellent. <laughs> so when you started getting the sound together, I mean, because I grew up, my brother was a bit older than me, about seven years, and um, so he was into sort of that prog rock period and also the early sort of, I suppose, heavy metal, the Deep Purple and the Black Sabbath. I mean, when you started making the sort of early sound of uh, Motorhead, did it come together quite easily or quite quickly? Well, I mean, it was just throwing three people together and we played. Um, but I have to say, in the beginning... Um, it didn't sound that wonderful um, because it was a, you know, there's a period, I think with most bands, especially if you're in something unique, like Lemmy's bass playing was so different from anything else. Yeah. It wasn't really what you call bass playing as we know it. It's, um, it's like rhythm guitar through a bass guitar. Yeah. And, but he was, he, he had a guitar sound on his bass, which made so there was no real bass in the band apart from Phil's bass drum. So it took a while before we actually, probably twelve months or so, even after the, we recorded the first album, before we actually got to grips with actually knowing, getting it so that it actually started to sound right. You know, yeah, it sounded a bit odd at first, even though we didn't care because we were just playing and making a noise and loving it. You know, yeah. and of course we'd have a bit of speed, you know, and we'd kick off, you know. And, yeah, you know, speed was very handy in them days because then you didn't have to worry about food, you know. Absolutely. That was a per perfect thing, actually. <laughs> well, and, did, and did you feel like a gang quite quickly? Oh, yeah, very quickly. It was us against the rest, you know. Right. Uh, but I think that was the mentality back then. I mean, obviously, with all the other punk bands, we were all very friendly and we all got on great. Yes. But I think the whole movement felt it was us against, you know, them, if you know what I mean, because the business didn't want us. Um, establishment certainly didn't want us, you know what I mean? And the police were always stopping us and searching us, you know. 
Absolutely. So really, we were on the other side of the tracks then, which was quite nice because it gives you a clear identity and a clear goal of where you're going. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas now, of course, there isn't that line anymore. Everything's sort of become one. Yeah. And, and you know, it was nice being like an outlaw. Absolutely. You absolutely. know, whereas now you can't really be an outlaw. Well, it also, also, it was quite interesting because John Peel picked you up quite early as well because you'd only just got your album out in 77, the first album, and then you did your John Peel session, which is kind of a... I mean, he was an out, he was an outsider in the, the establishment of the BBC, but to be on the John Peel show was quite special in those days. Yes, we were chuffed. I mean, and I don't even know how that came about, to be honest. I mean, we were just really excited. Yeah. Um, you know, to go down. I think we went down to Del, Del, Derwent Road, was it, the studios down there? Right. And um, we did the session. Then, of course, Lemmy put the bloody thing, blew the speakers up. <laughs> and we thought, oh, well, they're never going to have us back again. And I don't think they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you did. I think you did BBC concerts, but the John Peel session, you did, because you did three songs. You did the classic Louie Louie, didn't you? I think we did. I think we did I'll Be Your Sister. And, and Tear You Down. Tear You Down, because we were just starting to write our own stuff then so we were just coming into a, I thought there were four songs actually oh you might be right but I, I just remember those yeah I think there were four because I think that was the session I can't remember what the fourth one was but you're right we probably did Louie Louie or even White Line Fever but then oh, yeah, I, I remember we did I'll Be Your Sister which was off the Overkill album and, that... and we did Tear You Down we might have done Too Late Too Late right um, but they were, they were the, that was the new stuff we were starting to write and we were finally starting to write some good tunes, you know. Yeah. And they were coming, they started to come thick and fast after that. Well, you did, yes, because your next album's Overkill, which it starts with the most epic song, one of the most epic songs Motor had ever done, which was, which was the, obviously the title track as well, which just, because you think it's going to stop, don't you? And then it doesn't. Yeah, well, that was, that was kind of nice. <laughs> Overkill was, well, Phil had just got a new drum kit because we'd actually got a few quid. Somebody put some money up to make the album and bought some equipment, so Phil got a double drum kit. So we're sitting in the rehearsal room, and Phil goes, it's not playing the double drum kit, the, the, the overkill drum beat. He says, why can't we do a song like this? You know, yeah. And he's playing the double bass drum. So me and Lemmy look at each other, we go, in E? And we went, all right. So we just started playing in E. And then as we were just thrashing around, we formed it into overkill. Fantastic. And... Um, but the nice thing about the ending was, because we were rocking so much, and it was it, in those days, it was one of the first double bass drum tracks. Nobody had actually really collared double bass drums at that time in that way. Yeah. Actually basing a whole song on the double bass drum. And so it was quite unique. So when we got to the end, of course, we'd been cooking along, and of course, we were steaming, and it was fantastic. So we did this thing, oh, man, it's so fantastic. Let's start again. <laughs> Uh, and I remember the manager saying, we did it, I think we did it three times, and then, it, well, you say three times, it was two two restarts. Yeah. And um, the manager said, well, you can't do that. He said, you can't do that. I said, why not? I said, we're motorhead, we can do anything. <laughs> you know, which was true. Excellent, yes. So we we actually had a free reign. I know. It illustrates that, you know, being motorhead had its pluses in as much as... You could do anything you like, really. Yes. And Except it, play acoustic guitar and sing love songs. Yeah, that never goes. But, but the interesting thing is the songwriting in that very short period of time really changed, didn't it? Because the, the, you had about four or five songs that, you know, are, are still the classics, like Overkill, Stay Clean, Damage, Damage Case. And yeah, Damage System. Case. So, it, it, you know, it was, it was amazing how quickly the band sort of formed and got that sort of songwriting sort Yeah, we kind of, like, that's what I was saying early on, you know, when I said it took us a while before we found playing together and getting it organised, it took that sort of initial year or so, and then we started to find, find a sort of a formula, if you like, that made the band sound good, and of course with that came the songwriting, Yeah. and even so, when we'd done Overkill, we finished Overkill in, um, I mean, it was just after Christmas, 78. And uh, we did the tours and all that, did Europe and did, we never, didn't do America at that time. And of course, by, by the end of the summer, the, the record company wanted another album. So we looked at each other and said, yeah, yeah, we'll do another one. <laughs> of course, we, we just went in, it was fantastic because we just went into the, into the rehearsal room and we just rolled off all these songs. We were so hot at that moment, you know, from the yeah. over, the bomber just followed on. Yes. And, we, and within, I think, within four or five weeks, we had another album. 
Which is kind of, because kind of looking at the bands that, you know, I've been interviewing, there is this sort of almost a five-year narrative, you know, where people get together, they sort of realise they've made a bit of a sound, and which is often a bit of a surprise to them as well as everybody else. And they do the first single. Then with a lot of bands I've done is, you know, they do the John Peel session, then they do the album, the tour, and, and, they all, and for five years they live together so intently and they produce often a lot of material in that, that period. Is that how you also I, find... Well, yeah, I see it's two or three, two or three albums. Yeah, it's what I see. It's two or three albums. Is normally, you know, I mean, if you take Overkill, Bomber, and Ace of Spades, by the time we got to Ace of Spades, it wasn't quite that easy. It was still rolling out, but it wasn't as easy as it was, say, on Bomber. Yeah, and there was a bit more thought went into it, and the producer came in a little bit more, Vic Mail, and we did some some adjustments and some writing in the studio, some adjusting writing, you know. Yeah, uh, which was a new thing for us. Because what we used to do was we used to rehearse it till we were, till we could play it backwards in the studio. So we just went in the rehearsal room. So we just went in the studio and put it down. Because we didn't really like being in the studio that much. You know? yes. Plus it cost a lot of money, you know. And we didn't have any. <laughs> <laughs> well, so our manager told us. Yes. That's another one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, we found out later that we did have some money. But, you know, <laughs> we thought we didn't. So, you know, which was kind of good in a way. It kept us, you know, kept us lean and mean, you know. Yes. Because obviously the, the the album that you produced, Iron Fist, that, I mean, it does have some fantastic songs on it, but was that a bit of a... Is, was that when things started getting a bit more tricky? That was difficult, yeah, that was difficult. Uh, as I say, um, Ace of Spades went quite smoothly. There was some adjust... We'd been to America with Ozzy, we came back, and the record company were bouncing about ordering another album. They were forcing us to do another album. At this time, Phil had fallen out with Vic Mayo, the producer of Ace of Spades, and refused to work with him anymore even though we'd done half a dozen tracks with Vic for the new album. Yeah. So Phil and him had a very big round. Phil said, I'm not working with him anymore. So um, so then, of course, we, everything stopped. Uh, and then we started to look for a producer. Well, it wasn't easy finding a producer, because producers wanted a lot of money. Some wanted 10000 some wanted 20000 Well, when you're a band that hasn't got any money, you say, what do you mean you want twenty grand? Fuck off, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, you just can't do that. Yes. So, you know, that's one of the things I always say about the management. They shot themselves in the foot in a way. Because, you know, keeping us poor meant that, you know, when somebody said, oh, we want 10 grand, you say, oh, go away, you know, get a life. Yeah. So, of course, I'd just done the Tank album, um, who were managed by the same management, and I produced that. It took me a month in January, just over Christmas in January, and it sounded well. So Phil said, well, why don't you do it? I said, look, man, I can't possibly do the album and play on it. But Doug thought, the manager thought this was a great idea because, of course, it wouldn't cost any money if I do it. Yeah. Uh, and the record company were just desperate to get the album started. So I, and Lemmy was never happy with that. And I didn't really realise how unhappy he was with that. Uh, this is one of the things, I mean, I can't obviously talk to him about it anymore, but mm. looking back on it, I sensed that, you know, there was there was a bit of unrest there. Yeah. And um, so the album... We wrote the songs and all that, and some of them were good, but some of them were a little throwaway. And and the attitude in the recording sessions was difficult. You know, Phil came in and done his drums, then he disappeared. Um, Lemmy came in and then Lemmy disappeared, and I had to get Lemmy to come and do vocals or a bass overdub. He wasn't that interested. Nobody was really interested, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so cracks were starting to appear. And, of course, it stressed everybody out. Um uh, and then, of course, we did the um, then the tour followed. Um, you know, the record company, after all this whippiness to get it finished, we booked the tour and we're ready to go on the road. And we're on the road, and the album is not in the shops. So, I mean, I mean, you couldn't make it up really. The record company going on and on about doing the record, and then they'd send us out on the road without the record, so we couldn't do the new record. <laughs> But then Phil said he'd leave the band if we didn't do the new record on the third show in Glasgow. Right. And so Phil and Lemmy and I said, well, look, Phil, OK, if you feel that strongly about it, what we'll do is we'll, we'll do half a dozen so uh, tunes at the soundcheck tomorrow and we'll put them in the set. So that appeased Phil. But, of course, we went out, then we were going out doing six songs that the fans had never heard. Yeah. So, of course, they're standing there wondering what we're doing. <laughs> Uh, and so, so for the first time, we were we were, at, we were doing shows, and they weren't really coming alive until the encore. 
yeah. when we did all the old favourites. So, so yeah, things started to get stressed then. Yes. You know, because when your gigs stop not going well, you start stressing out, you know? Yes. And that is the first part of my interview with Fast Eddie Clark. I think we'll have a little bit of music. Then the next part of that interview. This is going to be Overkill.
Indeed, what not to like. That is Overkill by Motorhead. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And this is going to be the second part of my interview with Fast Eddie Clark, where I had been chatting or babbling a bit, really, about the, uh, yes, longevity of the band. And I was talking also about the, the five years of the Smiths. I know. And the fact that especially the guitarist Johnny Marr had been doing it for 24-7 for five years and eventually everything started to snap. And I just wondered if those same parallels were the, uh, with ring, also ringing true with his time with Motorhead. And this was Fast Eddie's reply. Eddie, take it well, away. It, just, it does start, it can implode. You, you, know, it's, it's, you know, it's important that you have good management and good record company at that period. Yes. But we didn't. I know. Uh, they weren't managing us properly, and the record company weren't behaving properly. And of course, you know, we were quite famous by then. And of course, you know, when you, you know, when you've got haven't got a pot of pissing, you don't care. You know, you don't think about whether you like someone or not. You just get on with it. Yeah, absolutely. But but when you you know when you're famous and all this, you know, what I mean, and you've got a few quid in your pocket, and you're thinking, oh yeah. Of course, suddenly things start to bother you. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I don't like him like that. You know what I mean? And all that. As, I mean, one of the other problems that a lot of bands often have is, is sort of like, obviously, the consumption of alcohol and drugs. Was that also something that... Was that a factor in Motorhead at all? or did Well, that... of course, yeah. I mean, a big factor. <laughs> <laughs> we drank like fish and, you know, took a lot of speed, smoked a lot of dope, you know. Right. And, you know, and, you know, and obviously we had fallings out, you know. Yeah. Under the... In, especially Phil and I. Particularly, we had fallings out, but of course, Lemmy would get dragged into it as well. But then Je- Lemmy was kind of, you know, he wasn't a saint by any means, Lemmy, because he never wanted to rehearse or anything. So there were always these arguments about things. Right. You know, we'd be going to, to an interview or something, and he'd be saying, oh, I don't want to do this, man. I want to go to the pub. And, you know, we said, no, man, we've got to do it, you know, and then there'd be a fucking argument, you know. <laughs> and then we'd all have a few beers, and it'd get even worse, you know. <laughs> and we'd been up all night, or maybe Lemmy might have been up three or four nights, which upset me and Phil. Yes. Because we'd be going on stage and let me be like not fully on it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So that would annoy us, so we'd have a row about that. You know, so there's all these rows started happening. Was it more difficult be- in in those days because you were there were three members and you were all quite equal? Be- well, I suppose it could have been. I mean, you know, I wouldn't have had it any other way. No. But um, I suppose it could have been difficult. But if one person had been in charge, I think. Our personalities were so strong yes. that we couldn't have been in a situation like that. Because I can see that, you know, because you started it together, you'd all sort of feel like a third of the, the band. Absolutely. It, was, it, it wouldn't have worked any other way. Yes. And not, neither, none of us could have worked for someone else in charge, you know. No. no. But it was working well for a long time. It was just, as I say, the management, the record company, they took their eye off the ball, really. Yes. And when we'd been to America, America takes a lot out of a band. You know, I had this with my following band, Fastway. You go to America and you play all these shows, but you play the same songs every night. 40 minutes, you know. Yeah. And we didn't go down well in America with Ozzy. You know, we supported Ozzy Osbourne. And we didn't go down well. In some states we did, you know, in like LA, New York, Chicago, Seattle. But in places like Nebraska and stuff like that, the people just didn't know what we were doing. They were looking at us like we were aliens, you know, people were walking out and all that. And so, of course, that doesn't do your confidence any good. No, and you must have been a bit confused, because obviously there was the sort of the L.A. rock scene, so you must have felt like, hey, how come you're not sort of paying attention to us in the same way that you, with all the Well, of course, yeah, while we were in America that time, of course, our, our live album went straight to number one. Yeah. So, of course, there's this sort of, like, weird thing going on. When you're playing in America and you're not really known anywhere... And yet you've got an album back home that's number one. I know. And you're in America and you can't get all the free drinks. <laughs> <laughs> so what a bummer, you know, you're thinking we shouldn't be here. Absolutely. And obviously then, you know, things came to a head when you were doing, when you were doing your sort of the cover of Stand By Your Man, wasn't it? That was the, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, really, I think, for all of us. Um, obviously things, I, I didn't notice that things were that bad, to be honest, because I never saw myself not being in Motred. Yeah, I, I thought I was going to die in Motorhead, you know. Yeah. Um, but obviously it got to a stage, and then, of course, we're doing this, you know, because we'd done the girls' school thing. The management said, oh, wouldn't it be a great idea to do something with the plasmatics? Well, Lemmy always liked working with, with other women rock stars, you know. 
So he loved the idea. So they said, well, look, well, Eddie, you produce it, because I, you know. And then Phil plays the drums, Lemmy plays the bass, we'll use their guitarist, and I think their bass player, actually. Yeah. And, um, and of course, Lemmy and Wendy would do a duet, you know. Which, when we went to New York and did rehearsals, you know, it was, I thought it was rubbish, because they were trying to play it as it was played in the country style, which is about 47 chords. You know, it's a completely different song. You know, I thought we should have done like a, a punk version. Yeah. You know, like a rock version with just straight chords. Simplified. But they wanted to do all the da 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 you know. Those are all different chords and I'm thinking, Well, why don't but let me said, No man, we're doing it this way and that's it, fuck off. <laughs> so I said, All right, then. so of course I was, I still never got it that something was wrong. So anyway, we go to Toronto to to do it. My engineer friend flies in, the guy that done Iron Fist with me and Tank. Um, and um, we started the sessions, and they were they were pretty good. We laid down the tracks; everything was fantastic, and the tracks were sounding very, very good. Of course, when it came to get Wendy to sing, she went out to sing, and it wasn't sounding right. So I figured that it was in the wrong key. So I said to her, "I said, what key do you like?" She said, "Oh, I like to say it was A." And I said, "Well, we've done it in C." So I went back to the to Lemmy, and I said, "Look, I think we should redo the tracks in the key that suits Wendy's voice." So we all agreed, and then we come back the next day, laid the backing tracks down again in the key that Wendy liked. And we said, okay, Wendy, can you do the vocals, you know? Well, she went out and did the vocals, and she started the vocals, and it just didn't sound right to me. I just wasn't happy with it. It was sounding a bit not motorhead, you know, very not motorhead. So I sort of, I then sleeked off. I said, well, you know, I'm going to have something to eat, and we'll sort it out later, you know? So, of course, I went to the fucking nearest off-license, bought a bottle of... Canadian club and went back to the hotel and got drunk, which made Lemmy really furious, you know. Yeah. Um, and Phil got really furious, so we had a big argument about that. And I said, "Look, I don't think we should be doing this. It sounds, it doesn't sound like motorhead. We're going to damage ourselves." And I was coming from the place that Iron Fist had already damaged us. You know, the album didn't go down as well as the earlier ones. The tour wasn't as successful as the earlier ones because of all the trouble I told you about. Yeah. I said, "We need something to." put us back in you know something easy i don't think we need to push the fans to this limit you know yes absolutely so i said look let me why don't we do an r&b thing going back to the r birds because lemmy was a big fan why don't we do hoochie coochie man say too much monkey business a chuck berry song and put out a blues ep while we're in america you know to keep yeah. the english fans happy no man we're putting this out and we'll put on the cover we'll put this has got nothing to do with eddie clark of course, that made me really upset because then I said, but it's my band man, as well. It's our band. You can't say that. Yeah. I care about the band. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think we're damaging the band. So, of course, I said, well, if you carry on with this, I said, I'll, I'll have to fucking leave. What else can I do? You know? They said, well, you have to fucking leave then, won't you? So I did. I said, all right, then I'll fucking leave then. <laughs> well, of course, you know, one thing led to another, and then we did the gig in Toronto. You know, nothing more was said. We had a gig in Toronto the following day. We drove down to New York. Well, the drive down to New York was very difficult. We had a big fucking row because they were wearing Wendy O. Williams T-shirts and playing Wendy O. Williams songs on the fucking, on the on the sound system, which pissed me off. And the manager was there, and he could see I was getting really angry. So in the end, I said, oh, fuck it, and that really is it. I've had enough. So anyway, so big rails ensued and all that. So we agreed to do the last show. And uh, after the last show, I went in the dressing room because they, they insisted I had a separate dressing room. So I went into their dressing room and said, look, guys, why don't we carry on? And they said, no, man, fuck off. And little did I know that Brian Robinson was already on a plane coming over to America. Yes. So, you know, you think, well, these guys have really betrayed me here. But at the time, I was just dumbfounded. Yes. So I, I, what could I do? I could do nothing else. Uh, I mean, I had to come back to England and with nothing. They kept all my guitars, all my equipment. And, you know, I had nothing. So I virtually had to start again. And how did it... I mean, is there a legality to all, all sort of leaving a band? Because obviously you must have had the kind of the, the songwriting credits and publishing must have... Oh, yeah, but that's all. Yeah, but the management had all that tied up. So, of course, that was very difficult. Um, it took me a while to sort that out. Not that long, because 
I met Pete Way and we started working together. And of course, there was great interest in my new project. And um, so, you know, I soon found a, an accountant to take care of me. I found new management. And of course, then they went in and, and sorted all that out. Uh, the record company, of course, let me go immediately. Right. Which was their mistake. Jerry Braun said to me later, he said, I'd have never let you go if I'd known you were going to put a band together like Fastway. Yes. Because I put a great band together that was really quite big in America. But um, they all had this wrong idea in their head. You know, I don't know what they what was going on in their heads, really, because Doug, I, I, I speak to Doug Smith, the old manager, but he can't seem to answer my questions. I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, to get rid of me was such a major mistake, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so you know, it still doesn't make any sense to me, but that was the end of the band. You know? Yeah. I've, and I of course, mean, they got Brian Robertson, but of course, they never recovered. No, and they they seemed to sort of have an issue with his... Was it his fashion sense they didn't like or something? Well, there was that, and of course, he did drink a lot, and him and Phil were doing the wrong drugs as well, from what I gather. Yes. Um, uh, and he did. He was a... He was a, a raging alcoholic and I think he found life in Motorhead more difficult than he could possibly ever imagined it wasn't an easy life no Lemmy was very difficult and hard to work with especially as a guitar player you know you had to sacrifice a lot of what you normally would take as norm you would sacrifice it to to play with Lemmy you know because you had no bass yeah so you had to you playing had to fit around not having a bass player having this sort of rhythm guitar thing. So I'd got used to it and we'd worked it out, yeah. like I said. But for Robbo, he'd have come in from Finn Lizzie with a big fat bass and a nice fat rhythm guitar, you know, yeah. to actually having nothing underneath him like that at all. I think it probably freaked him out. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I could imagine that was a bit of a tricky one. And actually, the, the, I mean, him and Wurzel were both quite damaged by the end of Motorhead, weren't they, really? Wurzel, well, Wurzel was, I think Wurzel was, I don't, I mean, I knew Wurzel, well, of course, then, well, then Robbo left and Phil left. They left together. Yeah. Because they were bosom buddies, you know. Yep. And, um, and I think they had the same taste in drugs and that sort of thing. I mean, one thing as a fan that one has is, is you know, often people want reunions. Obviously, that never is going to happen now. But the one thing that I suppose I, I never wanted the reunions with bands that I particularly like after they broke up. But there was a part of me, and it might sound a bit strange, but the, the idea that actually the members of the band were OK with each other. You know, it's it's on that level that you think, I just, I hope they... Kind oh, we were fine. We, we were absolutely fine. I mean, Lemmy and I got, were, were friendly. Lemmy never really, I don't think Lemmy quite, grasp what was going on he, I think he kind of thought it might be a good idea but I think when, when he started to think about it I think he thought it wasn't such a good idea because even in the hotel he was he was at least civil to me Phil wouldn't speak to me in the hotel Right. it was Phil who was most hostile Phil was the one because of course he wanted Brian Robertson in the band because he was a massive Finn Lizzy fan Right. and um, he'd often said to me you know he wasn't happy with some of my guitar licks I know that but you know but but you know so, so what happened was Phil, I never heard from Phil really for, Lemmy and I, I was at the Reading Rock Festival that year and Lemmy come over and started talking to me and then I went on stage with Twisted Sister to do a number and who should sneak on the back, Lemmy. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we were fine. Phil wasn't quite so easy. I didn't see Phil for, I don't know, maybe 18 months. Until he left the band, until he left Motorhead, and he came turned up on my up my door on my doorstep in London, and said, "Hi, man, how are you doing?" I said, "Oh, Phil, come in." He came in, and we had a few drinks, and he said, "Yeah, man, it was all a bit much for you. I said, "Sorry about all that, you know." So it was kind of by way of apology, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we were fine after that. We were jolly good friends. All three of us were jolly good friends after that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some of the stuff that you know in your sort of the absolute when Motorhead was sort of sort of on full cylinder. I mean, those performances, you must look back on and think, my God, that was one amazing band. Because there's there's a few songs in, in the history of rock and pop, etc., that are just kind of per perfection, aren't they? You know, you, you think of people like the Rolling Stones, Give Me Shelter, you, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze, and then, you know, Ace of Spades. It's like there's... there's oh, it's a magnificent song. There is, there, there is kind of, there is perfection there. Yeah, it is, there? it is. I, it's, I, and there aren't that many songs in the universe where you think there is just... No, I quite, I, I, I don't know whether you know, I did 10 shows with uh, supporting Saxon just before Christmas with Fastway. And at the end of the show, 
uh, I got up with Saxon and done Ace of Spades. So I had to brush up on it in my studio, so I stuck it on and I, you know, went through it. And while I was going through it, I stopped and I thought, bloody hell, this is a fantastic track. Yes. You know, it, it actually washed over me. As you say, the arrangement, the, the speed of it, the natural speed of it, it wasn't just, it wasn't fast, it was naturally fast, you know. Mm. By way the way, the way the riff was put together made it sound fast. It wasn't something we, we just wrote it like off the cuff, really. Yeah. But it really did turn out to be a magnificent tune. But there was help from Vic Mayo, the producer on that one, like I said. Right. Um, you know, he was good because he would say, well, why don't you have a stop here? Or why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? You know, and um, so, you know, that was one of the times when the producer's very helpful, you know. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, you know, what would you, I mean, <laughs> I love asking this. What would you say to your 18 year old self starting out in, in music? What would I say? What, knowing what I know now? Yes. I hope you get as lucky as I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was very ace of spades. I couldn't have dreamed of having an ace of spades. Yeah. I mean, okay, I didn't make too much money out of the business, but I've done okay. I'm not poor, you know. But to be honest, uh, I trade all that wealth to have an ace of spades. Because when you think about it, when, when all the dust has settled, you know, ace of spades will still be there. It will be there. And there's not a lot of bands, and I don't say this horribly, I mean, there's not a lot of bands can say that. No. Where you have a classic track, you know. So I'm, I think we're really blessed to have that classic track, you know. It is true. It is true. You know, yes. and you can't. It's not something you can plan. It's something that just happens by chance. You know, it's the right place, right time, sort of thing. It's all down to luck and chance, you know. It's almost. I know, without being too cosmic, it's almost like the planets have aligned themselves, hasn't it? And you just go, "Wow, that was just a, a moment in time." And, yeah, it's and also just pure, pure chance. I mean, luck, you know. And lyrically, again, you know, it's like God. There's just not one line in there where you think, mm, "Yeah, they could." Have no, changed. Lemmy was right on it with that. You know. Yeah, you know, we were talking about. We was writing the lyrics, and we did discuss aspects of it, and um, it was just flowing. And like I said, we were still flowing at that point. Yes. Lemmy was flowing. He, he he really got into the whole writing thing. Because before that, when we did the very first album, we had a track called Keep Us On The Road. Before uh, Overkill, um, we had a track called Keep Us On The Road. Well, he co-wrote the lyrics with Mickey Farron. Right. Now, he used to, because he, he wasn't a confident writer in those days, so he, Mickey used to help him out. He also helped him out on Damage Case, I think. Yeah. And um, on a couple of others in the past. So Lemmy hadn't found his feet either. So, you know, we all kind of found our feet at the same time. You know, I wasn't coming up with as many riffs. I, the riffs were just flowing out of me. And Lemmy was just, the lyrics were flowing out and Phil was just crazy on the drums, you know. Yes, absolutely. It was just, it was as you say, the planets aligned and we kind of actually put something quite wonderful together. At the time, though, it didn't seem that wonderful. Right. You know, and I look back and I think, oh, I wish I'd known we were that good then. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, you're struggling. You're thinking, oh, fucking hell, we need to get better, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're always moaning at each other, saying, oh, fuck me, man, you fucked up. And, you know, I wish we were better. I wish we were this and wish we were that, you know. Yes. Uh, but I think that's what keeps you striving forward. I guess, I mean, at the time, you know, you'd you'd sound quite peculiar if you said, we've just done a classic. You think, yeah, well, well you I, don't. You don't you, even know it. It's no, just another song. It's just another song. And 20 it? years later, you look back and think, Oh, that was quite good, wasn't it? In fact, I, I mean, I said to someone the other day, it was quite funny. I said, I looked back, I said, oh, we were actually quite famous then. Because <laughs> at the time, of course, you have no idea. Well, it was interesting you mentioned that because actually growing up in the in the area that I did, and it's probably the same for most of the UK, there were there were two bands that you just would never make a joke of because music was quite tribal in those days anyway. Very yeah. tribal, yeah. And, and there were two bands that, you know, you would just die if you mentioned anything derogatory, and there was Status Quo and Motorhead. Oh, yeah, yeah, in, in certain <laughs> circles. It's, uh, well, but of course, in the 80s, you know, the other, the other ones, you couldn't say anything against David Bowie or... Um, Tina Turner. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't get beaten up. I think that's the thing. The status quo and the Motorhead fans would would damage you, and and your dad would probably give you a kick in at the same time. You know. Well, I don't know. There was a lot made of our 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 fans were rough boys. You know, they were leather jackets, <laughs> long hair, and you know, I'm sure they liked to point and could be mean. But but we never had any trouble at our shows. No, the music. Yeah. It was the music. Never had any trouble. It was quite amazing. Yes. Well, I guess, you know, I mean, there's uh, just one last question. I mean, one thing that's always bothered me is, is deafness. I mean, did you 
I mean, did the, did the hearing go at all? Well, no, it didn't. But funny enough, a few years ago, I got a little bit of tinnitus. Just a little bit. But nothing, nothing that serious. And when I went to the, the doctor, I said, oh, what's this noise in me here? He said, oh, it's probably from playing loud music. So they did an ear check. And he said, oh, I see your ears are all right. Fantastic. So, you know, whether they were full of wax or something and they protected themselves because they were, you know. But, um, <laughs> but of course, it was, it, was, it was loud on stage, believe me. It was so loud. I mean, I got up with Lemmy and Phil. I got up with, I got up with them a few times um, over the years. I remember one time, I think it was at the Lyceum or the music machine, I got up with, I think it was Wurzel and Phil Campbell then. I got up and I did one number with them. And I come off, it was so loud, I was actually shaking. Because it was so loud, I had to turn the guitar for it because I couldn't hear anything. So I'm standing up there miming. And I come off the stage and I was actually shaking. Right. It was so loud. Fantastic. So, because I forget, you know, you get out of the habit. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was loud when we played, but of course you get used to it and it grows. It's like drinking, you know, you get used to drinking two bottles of vodka a day. Yes, <laughs> as you do. Yeah, as you do. Brilliant. Well, look, Eddie, thank you ever so much. I've got quite a bit here, but thank you for your time. And, I, and what I'll do, I'll tell your person that I've been contacting when the show goes out. Is that OK? Oh, brilliant, though, brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me your time. No, I enjoyed it, though. And, enjoyed uh, it. And, uh, yeah, take care, and I hope it goes really well with your latest musical adventures. OK, well, just keeping me ending, you know. Cool. Old soldier and all that. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> all right, David. Thanks very much. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And that was my interview with Fast Eddie Clark. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that. Um, that was done in August 2017. Indeed. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can Facebook, Twitter, even Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show. And all the shows have been archived, so you can find them on Podbean, Spotify, Mixcloud, and iTunes. There you go. Anyway, thank you. I'll leave you with our favourite, your favourite, my favourite, everyone's favourite. This is going to be Ace of Spades. It is musical perfection. That's the way I like it, baby, I don't want